Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, Trinity. I'm Ronnie Garcia. It's good to be with you, CO. Glad to have you guys. Uh, we, we're currently in a sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. And by Torah, we're just talking about the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. And more specifically, Jeff and I have set out to dig into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because as strange and as mysterious as that section of your Bible is, we think it is infinitely relevant for modern people. But admittedly, it takes a little work to get there because the original audience was a bunch of formerly freed Jewish slaves marching through the Sinai Peninsula following a pillar of fire and smoke. Now, if you think that you have nothing in common with those people, uh, let me suggest that if you can just look past the fact that you're glued to your smartphone and they aren't, that in reality, you have so much in common. And here's why. One of the main questions that that group of Jews had was this. What is freedom? How do we become free? See, for 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. For as many generations of grandparents as they could possibly think up, they were all slaves. The only script that they have is a story of oppression and bondage. Now, I can tell you, with no hesitation, in our culture... Our concept of freedom is perhaps the most politically sensitive topic in our modern world. It can account for almost every politically correct or politically incorrect fight that you see on CNN, Fox News, Facebook, whatever. Competing notions of freedom and equality are at the root of every belief about identity politics, whether it be gender, sexual orientation, race, or poverty. Everyone is interested in freedom, just like those freed Jewish slaves in the Sinai Peninsula 3,400 years ago. In fact, in our society, in our universities, we learn that we are actually still enslaved and that we should seek out liberation. How so? When we seek to express ourselves, when we are true to ourselves, when we are authentic to what is inside of us, in those moments, we are experiencing freedom, so we're told. Presently, our society is persuaded that when we live lives free of social expectations or unconstrained by social conventions or cultural norms, or even on occasion free from our biology, which are allegedly all the tools of slavery, then in so doing, we are becoming free. Clearly, we are a society deeply concerned with this topic of freedom. Listen, We are right to be absolutely concerned with freedom. But as we're going to learn today from our text in Leviticus, it is actually achieved in counterintuitive ways. See, the Jewish slaves were freed by God from Egypt, and then God greets them and and celebrates their freedom with rules. (laughs) What? 
aren't rules the tools of the slave master, right? I thought rules were like the exact opposite of freedom. So what is God up to? God knew that the only vision of reality or the only script that Israel knew was a script of slave master and slave. And God has taken this homeless group of farmers into the promised land as free people. But as soon as they get there, he knows that they will employ the only script they know. Although they are free people, their learned behavior from Egypt will take over. Only this time they will be the slave masters. History shows us how this thing works. The proletariat revolts against the bourgeoisie, and when they get power, they are as brutal or more so than their former slave masters. Why? It's the only script anyone knows. So today, we're going to see how God ensures that this doesn't happen. God looks at Israel and he says, when you get to the land... As free people, I have some rules, and these rules have everything to do with true freedom, what you're all looking for. It's called the year of Jubilee. God uses the Jubilee to teach his people how to be free. So with that introduction, let's give our attention to the text. In reverence to God's word, would you please stand with me? We're in Leviticus chapter 25. Verses 8 through 23. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his, prop- return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field." In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for the crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you shall dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crops? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine for you 
are are strangers and sojourners with me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. So, what we just heard is God instituting the year of Jubilee. As I mentioned in the introduction, he uses the, the, the Jubilee to teach Israel how to be free. The first lesson in freedom is one of identity. Jubilee confronted the Israelites with this question. When you get to the land, are you an owner or are you a guest? And let me illustrate why this question is a profound one. If you read the news, you know that not long ago, the Syrian civil war created a refugee crisis. It was serious. In fact, our mother church, Iglesia La Travesia, sent lots of financial resources to help in relief. But upwards of six million Syrians were displaced. Many found themselves pouring into various countries in Europe. Most of the countries were completely unprepared for this, so host countries set up these refugee camps. Basically, its designated land was parceled out and camps and shelters were established. It wasn't great, but there was food, water, and basic sanitation processes. At first, the displaced refugees were thankful for the hospitality. They were gracious guests. But over time, something changed. Gangs within the camps began to form. Certain refugees began to prey upon other refugees. And for self-protection, even more gangs were formed. We're talking about all-out, like, Lord of the Flies level here, right? So in a matter of time, turf wars in these camps had, been, had begun composed of people fighting for what they believed was rightfully theirs. When the refugees saw themselves as guests, there was relative peace. When people saw themselves as owners, they became perpetually vigilant. No rest, none, always trying to protect their stuff and to get more. And can I suggest that's actually what what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. When when Adam and Eve understood themselves as guests in God's garden, there was peace and rest. But But the moment that they became presumptuous, they started acting like gangsters, and it enslaved them. And of course, they were kicked out of the garden. Now... In our text, Israel is again confronted with this question of self-understanding. Are you a guest or are you an owner? Now, now just think about the context with me. Israel had just been released from 400 years of physical and financial slavery. They had nothing. They could not produce anything. God is inviting them to be the guest of honor in his land. But remember... They only have one script for how to do life, either as a slave or a slave master. So God says, as you go into this land in a free economy, you will be tempted to work in a way that exploits others. Don't do that, right? And he says, I'm going to help you by instituting a way of doing life there. Now think about this with me for just a second. Israel is an agrarian society. This isn't the Rust Belt, okay? Land was everything. Land was your means for making money. You plant, harvest, sell, 
trade. Or in some cases, an Israelite could lease some land for grazing animals. But here's the deal. If you had land, you had money. It could be monetized. But what happens if a drought comes or a a swarm of cute ladybugs makes your crop fail? And, And what happens if this happens several years in a row such that your land isn't even good for animals to graze? If this happened, you are broke and you can't even feed yourself. In this case, what you did was you started selling off your land, right? That's what's going on in verses 14 through 17. God regulates the price for land based on the next jubilee year. But if a day came and you've sold off all your land for food, what do you have left? Yourself. In this case, a Jew could indenture himself to someone You work for food. Now, this isn't chattel slavery, which included man-stealing, which is strictly forbidden in Israel. It wasn't great, though, but this was a willing indenture. But here's the thing. After a few cycles of this, the very fabric of society started to decay. Soon, entire families and clans fall into extended financial depression. And so, too, identities evolved from where they started. See, at first, everyone knew that there were guests working in God's land, but in no time at all, they ended up like people making payday shark loans, right? The script of slave and slave master would emerge unless they obeyed God's jubilee law to ensure that no Jew would have to enter into perpetual slavery or inescapable financial depression, God makes a jubilee year. Now, what exactly is a jubilee year? Now, let me just summarize our text for you if this is a new concept. So, in Israel, every seventh day, the Sabbath day, Israel worshipped and then they rested. Well, every seventh year is a Sabbath year, and Israel was to give the land a rest. So, the sixth year, God would give a bumper crop, right? That's what's going on in verse 21, to make sure that there was enough food for the next year. This, of course, cut into their profit margins, but uh, they needed to trust God, not their own logic. Well, after seven Sabbath years, or seven times seven, 49, they started the following day of atonement. We learned about that two weeks ago, right, Trinity? And, And that is what was the inauguration of the Jubilee year. So this makes it every 50 years. The year of Jubilee is when God demanded that all debts be forgiven, all indentured servants free of their commitment, and all land parcels be reset to how the land was originally divided by God. The land titles and the plots are carefully given in the book of Numbers. When you're reading it, you know you're there. (laughs) Uh, God is building into the legislation of their society protections from perpetual financial depression or oppression. So even if you came on hard times... It would not last forever. At least your grandchildren would not have to suffer. Why? Because the Jubilee was a reset button. Now everyone, suspend all of your capitalistic intuitions and think about just how smart this is. It ensured that every Jewish person would get a complete second chance to start over on life. It means your children didn't have to reap the pain of the father's sin or the father's misfortune. 
It put a light at the end of the tunnel that kept people working hard. But more, people, more importantly, it restrains man's natural tendency towards savage and purposeless accumulation, right? I mean, think about this for me for, with, for just a second. If we accumulate wealth with profound purpose for employing it for God's purpose, that's great. But if you are accumulating for no other reason than to win the game of dying with the most toys— That's totally not okay. But if you knew that every 50 years, it will be all taken away from you and revert back all those resources to the general population, then wouldn't you live differently, right? Wouldn't that light a fire under you to live with deep intentionality? I mean, for the well-being of others? Now, it might mean that people who, according to your judgment, didn't earn it, or, or they don't deserve it, but you'd only say that if you were tempted to see yourself as an owner, right, instead of a guest. Why? Because none of the land is yours, right? No one earned it. No one worked for this. Man, you were a slave, helpless. No one was on his way, on it, on his way to help you until God showed up. God says, I literally rescued you through a sea that parted wide open, Right? God graciously gifted them land that was flowing with milk and honey. So there was this audacity for a Jew to start acting like a gangster landowner claiming his rights, that he deserved it, right? And so God's law ensured perpetual freedom by protecting against our natural greed, that script. Now listen, it is critically important that you get to know this side of God. Christianity will have no teeth unless you get your heart and brain around this. Christians have always had a preference for the poor. And Christians have always looked at their own wealth as as a gift on loan from God. That's how Christians think. We are guests not owners, inhabiting God's provision. We look around and we, and we say, we don't, we don't deserve any of this stuff. God is way more gracious to us than we deserve. So for Christians, this is not just like this intellectual proposition. This is a deep posture of our soul, right? It's a lens in which we imagine and understand reality, So would you take time this week and ask, who am I? No, I mean, really, who am I? How how do I relate and think about God? Am I a guest in his world? Or have I deceived myself into thinking that I have earned what I've got, what I have? See, freedom begins from a correct self-understanding, a self-identity. So let's transition now to our second point. So I began by saying that God uses the Jubilee year to teach Israel how to be free. So in our first point, I explained that the Jubilee year confronted Israel with a question of identity. Are you a guest? Are you an owner? One gives rest. The other is toxic. And and the Jubilee ideally helped them to answer that question correctly. Now, the next way that the Jubilee year taught Israel to be free was by teaching them 
the deceptive nature of slavery. Slavery can come by both poverty and riches. Now, even as I say that, some of you are super dialed into what I'm saying. You know all too well that riches can enslave like poverty. Sociologists have long documented the higher rates of mental disorders, suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, and social alienation that comes from financial privilege. People of means are more likely to score lower on these so-called happiness indexes. I don't know exactly how they measure all that, but you get the picture here, or you get the idea. Now, for me, my convincing came via a more primitive medium. When, uh, when Micah, my son, was six years old, he's 14 now, uh, I, I, thought that I, would te- I thought it was time to teach him the American classic uh, of Monopoly, the game, Hasbro. Now, my son was not aware that this game is fueled by capitalistic savagery. Right? He thought it, it was a nice opportunity for goodwilled people to cooperate and build a nice neighborhood with nice houses and hotels that mutually benefits everyone. So being aware of his naivety, I did what every good father would do. I crushed him. Right? I got all the railroads, all the utilities, I got title deeds, built hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place, and I liked it way too much. My boy was broke. I was like, buddy, give me all the orange ones, the orange bills, right? That evening ended in tears. Uh, I won, but I can tell you in no uncertain terms, I lost. The night didn't end well. Even the silly little game, one can see how winning and accumulating did not produce the flourishing and well-being that I hoped it would, right? See, God understands the futility of our thinking. See, Israel thought Egypt was the goal. They thought if they could just be like Egypt, they could be free. When they had servants... They would be happy. And so there is this sinful temptation to think that having land and indentured servants was the key to happiness. They were tempted to think that putting a U-Haul on the back of their hearse meant that you were winning. Right? Y'all have heard that expression? Right? That's the beauty, though, of this Jubilee system. The reset button hit every 50 years And it forced you to really get honest and think about things. Poverty really enslaved people. And the captives really needed to be set free. The children of those unfortunate farmers needed a chance to be free from their economic oppression. But listen, riches really enslaved people too. Really. And the Jubilee system created a hedge of protection to keep their hearts from enslavement. The 50-year reset made you carefully rethink what you were trusting your wealth for. What, are you, what exactly are you hoping that your wealth is going to do for you? Because if you answer that question wrong, you'll end up a slave. A slave riddled with anxiety, resentment, pathologically suspicious of everyone, right? And so in verse 23, look there, it says, God says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, 
Did you hear that with me part? That's the key. In this life, the land, that is your wealth, is the Lord's. We are guests with God himself. What you're hoping that your wealth will give you can only be supplied in a relationship with God. Don't confuse God's stuff with God himself. The land, the wealth, will become a slave master without this jubilee rhythm of freedom. Wealth will only make you anxious and demand your never-resting vigilance to protect it. And even still, even if you have it, you will have no real security. Listen, we still need this rhythm of freedom to change our expectations on what we trust money for. And you know why? You know why? Because cancer doesn't care about your money. Because a drunk driver who kills your daughter doesn't care about your money. Because a hurricane doesn't care about your money. Because an undertow at the beach taking your son out to sea, filling his lungs with salt water until he dies, doesn't care about your money. Money can't give you the security that your heart longs for. Only God can. In the 17th century, Samuel Rutherford, he's a Scottish Presbyterian theologian pastor. He wrote a letter to a grieving mother who lost her daughter. Listen, listen to these precious words. Remember, he says, remember of what age your daughter was and that just so long was your lease of her. If she were 18 or 19, I know not, but sure I am, seeing her term was up and your lease run out, you can no more justly quarrel against your great superior for taking his own at his just term than a poor farmer can complain that his master taketh a portion of his land to himself when his lease is expired. Indeed, that long loan of such a good daughter, an heir of grace, a member of Christ, deserves more thanks at your creditor's hand than that you should murmur when he craves his own. When he craves his own. Everything is on loan to us. Even our children. Listen, Trinity. God wants you to be free. And so this reset button is good for both the, the poor and the rich. Both poverty and riches have the ability to enslave you. And so we, we have to think really well about both of these dynamics. Now, for, for those of us here, we're not, we're not Israel. We don't have this sort of church-state nexus anymore. That's not the point. We don't have a jubilee year. But we still need some kind of reset button, don't we? I would beg you, take time this week to have a real self, like honest self-evaluation. Pay attention to your anxiety. Pay attention to your resentment. Pay attention to your fears. What are those things saying? 
right? What are they pointing to? What's behind all of that? Those things deep in your heart cannot be solved by your wealth. And when you lean on your wealth to give you that security, then you are moving into slavery. You are admiring Egypt instead of admiring and resting in Christ. Slow down. Pay attention. Don't let these moments pass. Let the Spirit do its work. Let me conclude with one final thought. The Jubilee year was instituted by God to teach Israel how to be free. And so the Jubilee first interrogates us by asking, are we guests or are we owners? And, and, and then it teaches us about the sort of deceptive nature of slavery. That is, both poverty and riches can enslave people. And so we need to find in God what we often foolishly ask our wealth to give us. So here's my final thought. By all accounts, the Jubilee year that is instituted by God himself in Leviticus 25 was never once practiced. Israel never did it. Jubilee never happened in the history of Israel. But then Jesus comes along 1,400 years after it was instituted. In Luke 4, Luke tells us that Jesus went to a synagogue to teach He picks up this Isaiah scroll. He finds and quotes Isaiah chapter 61, which is a reference to the Jubilee year. And he says this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then without any additional commentary, Jesus says, today, that scripture, that jubilee year has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, and what do you think happened? Do, do you think like the Jews were just overjoyed? I mean, do you think they celebrated? They're like, wow, finally, this is happening. No, they were totally irate. They tried to pu- push Jesus off of a cliff. He escaped. For a little while, eventually they got him, and they hung him to a cross. What's this all about? Jesus is the incarnate jubilee. In him, our deepest freedom is realized. Freedom is not found in the ability or the right to not choose Jesus. Y'all, you hear that? Freedom is not found in the ability or the right to not choose Jesus. Freedom is, uh, is our enabled ability to choose him and find deep rest for our souls in Christ alone. The whole narr- this whole narrative about Jesus is supposed to be perplexing and, and, and beautiful. I mean, why did Jesus leave his throne and perfection in heaven? Why why did Jesus leave his father's side and and become a slave and become a refugee? I don't know, but clearly he loves you. Clearly he's crazy about you. Jesus left heaven as a refugee 
so that we could find rest as guests enjoying infinite wealth in the Father's house forever. May God bless his word. Amen.